Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you'll give us uh, ears to hear what you have to say, uh, open our hearts and our minds uh, to comprehend uh, the truth of uh, what you are teaching us. And we pray that as we hear, we might not just be hearers, but doers also. Give us, by your spirit, the power to, uh, to hear your commands and the freedom to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we now move on in our journey through 1 Corinthians uh, from the topic of uh, marriage and sexuality to one which maybe on the surface might feel to us uh, irrelevant given our place and our time. But as we'll see, it, it is actually extremely relevant. Uh, it's not merely about what food we eat, but how the wisdom of the cross is working its way through the complexities of, of living and loving in uh, this world. We need to understand uh, something of what, why this was a, an issue for uh, the, not just for the Corinthians, but for uh, the first century Christians right across uh, uh, the world at the time. Uh, this issue is addressed also in the book of Romans, so it was a, a big issue not just for the Corinthians. In the ancient world, uh, as today, if you lived in a city, uh, it's unlikely that you had animals of your own, uh, as in animals for food production, not, not pets. So if you wanted any kind of animal products for food, uh, you would have to go and buy them. But for the Corinthians, they couldn't just go down to the meat section of their local supermarket. Most, if not all, of the meat that was available for sale was from animals that had been sacrificed at local pagan temples and shrines. Uh, this was a, a one way of the temples having a source of income as well of, as a way of disposing of all of the the thousands and thousands of animals that would have been regularly sacrificed uh, on a daily basis. To add to the complexity of the issue, uh, a lot of these temples in the cities would also function as public venues. Uh, they would actually hire their facilities out for functions, I guess, like uh, churches do today. They were available for things like wedding banquets, or other civil events. But a condition of having your event in the temple is that you participated in the worship. It was a very rare, would have been very rare for your events to not involve some kind of ceremony in devotion to the God of that temple. So that put Christians in an interesting and sometimes difficult place especially if they had become a Christian out of that Gentile pagan worship. Uh, they may still have had uh, family members or friends or uh, business partners who were involved in these, this pagan worship. So what were they to do then when the trade guild to which they belonged required them to attend one of these banquets in order to remain a member of the trade guild in order to 
keep practising their trade and earn a living for their family? Or what were they to do when they were invited to the wedding of a non-Christian friend or colleague or family member? Or what if they just simply needed to buy meat to feed their family but the only option was to buy it from the local temple? This was a, a real and a real pressing issue for the, the thousands and eventually millions of Gentiles who were flowing into the church. Uh, over the course of the first century, the, the balance of the church went from mainly Jew to a few Gentiles coming in to mainly Gentile. It was one of the issues that was discussed at the very first church council that's recorded in uh, Acts chapter 15. It led to a letter being sent out to the Gentile believers uh, there in verse 29 that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these you will do well. Farewell. Now Paul was one of the couriers who originally took this letter from Jerusalem down to the city of Antioch and most likely there would have been multiple copies made of that letter and as the apostles went out they would have taken these letters with them and given them to the Gentile churches. So it's extremely likely that the Corinthian Christians would have read this letter or at least heard it read to them. So the question that they have for Paul, to which Paul is responding, wouldn't be so much, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? But more likely, based on this letter, why can't we eat sacrificed uh, meat? Now, before getting into the theology of the issue, Paul reminds us, as we've been reminded again and again, and will continue to be reminded in future chapters that the foundational motivation for all we do is love, love for neighbour and especially love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he deals with this in verses 1 to 3. And in verse 1 there's another instance of Paul quoting something the Corinthians were saying which needed to be corrected in how they understood it and applied it. It's a statement that uh, was true, but they were applying it in an unhelpful way. And that statement is, all of us possess knowledge. Is this true? Well, absolutely. In his introduction to the letter, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a hint there of what he says a little bit later in chapter 12 where knowledge is one of the gifts given by the Spirit to the church. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So it's important for us to hear what Paul says here about knowledge because it will help us to understand what this gift of knowledge is, how it should be used and how it shouldn't be used in the church and this will become clear as we work our way through this passage. Now it's clearly not wrong to have knowledge. It's not possessing knowledge per se that causes a person to be puffed up or as we might say today to have an inflated view of themselves. It's not having knowledge so much as how we use the knowledge that we have. An educated person, just thinking of knowledge in general, might use their knowledge to become arrogant, to belittle or to control others. Or they might use their knowledge to humbly serve, to use what they know for the good of others. And we've all seen those two uses of knowledge at work, haven't we? And if we're honest, we've all been guilty of using knowledge in harmful or hurtful ways. A puffed up person has knowledge and they want to take credit for their knowledge as if it's because of their own wisdom or intelligence or their hard work. Even if they say it's from the Holy Spirit, well, it's because I qualify as a more worthy or a more spiritual person to have been given that knowledge. So it's a sad irony, isn't it? And a tragedy, really, that we can take something that is a gift of the Spirit and turn it around and twist it to serve our own ends, to make much of ourselves instead of making much of Christ and of others. By contrast, Paul says, love builds up. This is a word that's literally used to refer to the building of a house or a structure. In that, the the builder, their focus is not on themselves, it's on the structure that they're building and they're doing it for the good of the people who will then dwell in that home. So whereas the word puffed up literally means to be filled with air, to to build up means constructing something solid, something substantial, something out of bricks and stone. So here's what was probably happening in Corinth in the church. Those who considered themselves to be wise and spiritual and mature were saying, well, I know, I know what's going on at these banquets. I know that this meat is being offered to idols, but I know that an idol is really nothing. And my faith is strong. I'm able to resist the temptation to worship other gods. I can go to these banquets, I can eat the meat and I can remain secure in my faith. I can maybe even go through external motions that from the outside might look like I'm participating in this idol worship 
but in my heart I'm remaining true to Christ. So don't worry about me. I'm okay, I have spiritual knowledge. Well, Paul's answer is simple and blunt. It's not about you. It's not about your personal faith. It's about others and about how your actions impact on their faith. It's not about whether or not you can go to banquets, whether you can conduct business in the world in a way that your faith isn't compromised. It's about caring for the hearts, for the consciences of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about whether your actions actually glorify Christ, whether they adorn the gospel so that more people will be drawn to put their faith in him. So it's not about what you're allowed to do or what you have a right to do in your Christian freedom. It's about the obligation that you have to love. So in verse 2, Paul pulls no punches. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But, sorry, I've left off verse 3 there. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See the twist? We're expecting Paul to say, if anyone loves God, then they truly know God. But instead he turns it around and he says, actually, the most important thing in the end is not our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of us. That's what really matters. Here's Jesus' words on the day of judgment to those who thought that they were in the kingdom but in actual fact they were outside. On that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's important for them is not that they do the miracles and they know him, they call him Lord. What matters is whether he knows them. Now obviously he's not saying he knows nothing about them. God knows all things about all people, even down to the hairs on our heads. For some of us he's constantly doing a recount in that regard. But this is knowledge that goes far beyond perceiving the facts. It's a personal, a relational knowledge. It's a knowledge that began before the creation of the world when God foreknew us, when in love the Father determined to make us in the image of his Son so that we might be participants in the love that he has for the Son. Even back then, his Love and his favour was directed towards us even before we existed. God knows every person but there's a special, unique knowledge he has of us, his people, those who belong to him in Christ. And it's a knowledge that comes from a union, a union of him living in us and us living in him. Jesus says in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word 
and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That explains Paul's words, doesn't it? If anyone loves God, they're known by God because the Father and the Son will come and make their home with us. To be known by God is to be the object of his strong, affectionate, electing, adopting love. In that love he holds us in the same embrace that he holds his beloved son. So can we really think that gathering and gaining more knowledge will be the key to our security in Christ? Can it be just knowledge in itself that will protect us from the idol feasts. Knowledge will, of course, be used by God to help us grow in maturity, so we shouldn't reject knowledge. But if we think that our knowledge of God is more important than God's knowledge of us, then we're on dangerous ground because that's the sin of pride. It's no mere coincidence that the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was already given true knowledge when God spoke to him. As Adam heard the command directly from God, God made it clear to him what was evil. Evil was to disobey and to eat from the tree. God had made it clear to him what was good. Good was to obey him and to eat from every other tree. So he knew about evil, but when he ate, he knew evil intimately and internally along with the guilt and the shame of it. And then this guilt and shame led to fear when he heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So he hid from him instead of communing with him. Then he was banished from God's presence into a world of wandering. And in the world he would gain lots of knowledge, but he wouldn't know what it is to be known by God in that intimate sense. Well, that's the curse that Jesus has undone, isn't it? He's united himself to us. He knows us and our humanity intimately. He's taken us in himself to the cross where he knew the horror of our sin and our death. And he broke the power of that sin. He broke the power that evil holds over us, that idols hold over us. He took us into the tomb and he brought us with him into the resurrection. So now the Father's words to him are the Father's words to us. You are my beloved son or daughter. In you I am well pleased. I know you. So this was the knowledge that the Corinthians had. 
knowledge that wasn't wrong knowledge. It's the knowledge that every Christian needs to be a Christian. But it was a knowledge that they were using in a way that they shouldn't be using it. This knowledge was as simple as um, there is no God but one. A simple truth that they as Gentile people had come to realise as they heard the Gospel. We take it for granted, don't we? There is no God but one. We assume it because we're Christians and we live in an environment, in a culture where most people would probably say, yes, there is only one God. They might say also something like, and all the gods of the different religions are really just different expressions of the one God, whoever or whatever that is. But the Corinthians lived in this polytheistic culture, meaning many gods, the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. These cultures saw the the Jewish assertion that there is only one God and then the Christian assertion there's only one God as peculiar. For them there was a whole collection of gods and anyone might select one particular God out of the many choices to be their God of devotion. Trade guilds would have a patron God that all of their members were required to devote themselves to. But it was with the understanding that There are many other options out there. If you changed your trade, you would also change your God. In the Old Testament, we see a slightly different pattern to this, but nevertheless, it was still polytheism. People in what we now call the ancient Near East or the Middle Eastern area believed that there were many gods and the gods were tied to geographical locations. So depending on where you lived, you would pay homage to the God of that particular area. That's why it was a peculiar thing for the Lord to go with his people. He was with them in Egypt. He went with them through all of their wilderness wanderings. He went into the land with them and was with them in the land Then when they were exiled to Babylon, he showed himself to be with the exiles in Babylon and then he eventually returned with them to the land. He wasn't tied to a region. He is the Lord of all creation. The Lord of all creation who has chosen to identify himself as Israel's God. He tied himself to a people, not to a region. In doing this he showed himself not just to be different to the other gods but to be the only true God and all the other gods and lords were merely distortions or imitations of this. So Deuteronomy 10 tells us, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is the kind of language that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians. 
There are those who are claimed to be gods, those who are claimed to be lords in heaven and earth, but in reality there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So all others are fakes, they're scams. So an idol, a a physical statue or picture standing in the shrine or temple is simply a block of wood or a chunk of stone, something that's been made out of the imagination of people's minds to, to reflect the kinds of desires and longings that they have in their depraved hearts. John Calvin said, the heart is a perpetual idol factory. Isaiah paints a rather comical picture of idolatry. In chapter 44, he describes this man who cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? See how Isaiah here also uses the language of knowledge. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment. This man's ignorance, which is a spiritual ignorance flowing from his refusal to worship the one true God, leads him to do something which where you can see on the surface appears to be quite foolish. But in his heart he thinks he's being wise. He thinks he has knowledge. That's the Old Testament perspective then on gods and lords. The people of the nations have become slaves to objects of metal and stone and wood. These objects themselves can't even see, can't even perceive, can't even have knowledge, yet the people trust in them. But the knowledge that the Gospel brings, this personal, intimate knowledge of the true and living God in Jesus Christ, has broken through this idolatry of the Gentile nations and it's brought them into the light of the truth. And this is the knowledge that the Corinthians had and the knowledge that we have. 
And this knowledge means that the power that these idle nothings have in our hearts and our minds has been broken. We no longer need to fear the idols nor their association with dark or spiritual powers. And as I say all this, you you know, don't you, that uh, we may not literally bow down to a statue in a shrine, but we have many other things in our lives that uh, we trust in instead of trusting in God. Christ who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Satan with all of his clever lies and his deceits has been unmasked and so in the Gospel we are plainly able to see what is true, what is false, what is good, what is evil. And that means that a Christian may walk around amongst all of the idols of the world like Paul did in Athens when he was, saw the shrines to all the different gods and not be defeated, not be overpowered by them, but like Paul in Athens, to be grieved and to have a burning desire to make the true God known to these people who are slaves to these gods and these lords. A few years ago, an Indian friend of mine invited me to an event. It was an event celebrating the birthday of the founder of his religion, of Jainism. His words to me was, it's kind of like our Christmas. Uh, This event was to be held in the Hindu temple down in Marion and it would involve uh, a series of ceremonies followed by a meal What would you have done if you were me? I felt at that time a little bit like a Corinthian Christian invited to a temple where there was an idol feast. There were lots of questions I had in my mind such as if I go will I be seen to be endorsing his religion? Will I be expected to participate in some kind of ritual? And if I refuse to, will it cause offence and will it damage our friendship? What if someone who knows me sees me walking into this Hindu temple and will they think that I've compromised my faith or will I cause them to stumble? And even will I be opening myself up to dark, evil spiritual powers? But I also had some other questions. Will this help my friendship with this person? Will it actually give me an opportunity to share the gospel with him? Will it give me a good reason to invite him to come to church for Easter, which was only a few weeks after this event? Will it help me understand his religion more? so that I can better communicate the gospel to him and to the Jain community. Lots of questions there. And I won't tell you yet what my final decision was. I'll save that for my sermon in two weeks because Paul continues to unpack this issue in the next two chapters. But let's see what Paul's initial application was for the Corinthian Christians.
because idolatry in Corinth was mainstream, there was probably a temple on every street. And we see in verse 10 that the temple, temples were obviously open and visible so that someone walking past could see what was going on in there. They could see the feasts and see who was in there and participating. So even if someone was convinced in their own heart that idols have no real existence, if they were convinced that their security in Christ was in danger by attending the feast and eating the meat, they should always assume the possibility that one of their fellow Christians will see them there or will hear of their attendance. So that person who sees them had become a Christian out of a, a pagan idolatry background. If they were maybe a new Christian or they were still growing, if they still hadn't worked through these issues or come to a full appreciation of the the nature of idols or what it truly means to be set free and to be secure in Christ, how would they then interpret what they saw? Most likely, they would think, well, if this person, who's a much more mature Christian than me, is eating in the temple, then maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay to hold my faith in Christ and serving idols somehow together because that seems to be what this person's doing. Maybe I can have a foot in each camp. Maybe I can hold on to my old religious practices and ideas for the sake of harmony with my family or my, my workplace as well as being a Christian. So the result will be instead of encouraging my brother and sister, instead of helping them to grow and become mature in Christ, I would be causing them harm. I would be confusing them. I'd even be facilitating them to get caught up once again in the bondage and the slavery of idol worship. I would be robbing them of their assurance in Christ. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul takes us back again to the cross. Remember, the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God and Paul just keeps applying the message of the cross to every life situation. This person whom I may lead to stumble, they're not just my brother or sister. They're my brother or sister for whom Christ died. So my sin isn't just against my brother and sister, it's against Christ. Why? Because even if my doctrine is sound, even if I understand all the ins and outs of what idols really are and what the victory of Christ means for me, if I understand how I can be in a place that is characterised by spiritual darkness and still stand firm in my faith, I can have all of that, but if I'm not genuinely loving my brother or sister from the heart, I'm not actually displaying the real genuine fruit of the gospel in my life. I'm not displaying Christ crucified. Christ who was willing in love to lay aside all of his privileges, all of his 
rights and his reputation and to lay down his life for sinners. Christ and him crucified is not just the message we preach, it's the reality that should shape our lives. So Paul finishes with a very strong, bold statement. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is willing to lay aside his rights that come from his knowledge of the gospel but he's willing to put it aside for the sake of his brother or his sister in Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you that your Son, our Lord, even though in nature is equal to you in Godhood, he did not consider that something to be grasped hold of, but instead emptied himself, came to us, took the nature of a servant and humbly obeyed even to the cross. Father, our desire is that that reality of Christ and what he has done for us might not just be something we know in our heads, not even just something we know in our hearts that captures us, but something that will flow through into the way we live, the way we love one another. Father, as we continue to journey through this section of 1 Corinthians and we We'll hear more in the weeks ahead of what it means to surrender our rights for Christ. We ask that by your spirit you'll give us the power and the willingness to joyfully do that so that your name might be glorified and that your church might be built up. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song that reminds us of the great grace that God has uh, poured upon us. When we were unworthy and unable, uh, he has taken hold of us and called us into his family. Let's stand and sing.